as we have finished up the Gospel of Matthew before Christmas and then went through Advent, we start a new series, uh, Wisdom for Day-to-Day Living, if you will, and it's, uh, uh, the focus will be in the book of Proverbs. And when you start to look at the idea of wisdom, there seems to be no shortage of advice as to how to get it and to seek it. And uh, so, just out of curiosity, I, I put seeking wisdom on the, you know, and punched it in on the uh, internet. And what I got was was uh, really quite interesting. The very the very first one up out of 114 million uh, hits, the very first one up was uh, Seeking Wisdom from Darwin to Munger uh, by Peter Belvillain. And uh, yeah, Peter Belvillain, Bevelin begins his fascinating book with Confucius's great wisdom. A man who has committed, quote, a man who has committed a mistake and does not correct it is committing another mistake. Seeking wisdom is the result of Evelyn's learning about attaining wisdom. His quest for wisdom originated partly from making mistakes himself and observing those others, but also from the philosophy of super investor and Berkshire Hathaway vice chairman Charles Munger, who is the other side of Darwinism in our age. You know. uh, a man whose simplicity and clarity of thought was unequal to anything Bevelin had seen, in addition to naturalist Charles Darwin. Uh, he cites encyclopedic uh, range of thinkers, and, and it just goes on and on about this book. And so it's the, the very first one that comes up about seeking wisdom. And so I punched in uh, seeking wisdom, but I put Christianity in the picture. I said seeking Christian wisdom. And it was nice to see that the very first thing that came up was uh, get wisdom by uh, from desiring God by by uh, John Piper. So it's it's very important as you're looking at things, as you're thinking through. When I want to seek something, when I want to look for something, when I want you know to be very precise about it. And even when you do that, as you go through the list of of 45 million entries and hits uh, on seeking wisdom from a Christian perspective, you'll find a number of them which would not coincide with Christianity the way we think about it. And so the, the question is, again, as, as we look at this, no shortage of advice, the question is, where do we start? And the idea is that we start with a Christian viewpoint. Uh, and for me, that would be, you know, from a pastoral point of view, but, but I would hope from most Christians' point of view, it would be to say, what does the Bible have to say? And... Excuse me, I'm sure that I'm preaching to the choir in some ways here, but the idea would be to say the wisdom books of the Bible would be places to look and start. Uh, That includes Job and Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon, or the Song of Songs. And uh, those are considered the wisdom literature of the Bible, the wisdom books of the Bible. And it's interesting, I took a course when I was in... Uh, college that was uh, entitled Wisdom Literature. And it did include these along with Confucius and all sorts of other books. Uh, got into Zoroastrianism and Persian wisdom and, and, and different things. And what was most interesting was that they viewed 
and, and I, I have to give credit, the, the teacher was uh, making the point very clear that, that indeed there was wisdom in the books in the Bible, Job and Psalms and, and Proverbs, uh, he emphasized Proverbs especially, uh, Ecclesiastes and the Song of Songs. And uh, he gave it some credit, but he didn't give it any more credit than he gave Confucius or Zoroaster or any other number of religious and philosophical thinkers through the ages that were part of our, our study. And so we look at it, and from a Christian point of view, I would never tell you that it's inappropriate to study Eastern philosophy, for instance. If you're in school, it might be a mandatory course that you have to take, this type of thing. But always look for the balance by coming back to Christian values and, and looking, if you will, through a Christian window as, as you're looking at these things and saying, okay, this, is, this makes sense. I can see some wisdom in it. But when you add some biblical thinking to it, you come to this conclusion. And, and try to wrestle with it that way. And like I said, there's no shortage of people offering you ways to look at the world uh, today. Uh, in the book of Proverbs, uh, we start with the, just the, we're going to start with chapter 1 today. Uh, I'm going to read the introduction that is in my Bible. Uh, it wouldn't be the same necessarily in everybody's. Uh, a lot of times you'll have a, a paragraph or two before the, the, the book starts about something about the author and this type of thing. And uh, in the introduction in my uh, Bible says, Practical wisdom for living is the central concern of the book of Proverbs. We are told that the beginning and essence of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Proverbs often contrast the benefits of seeking wisdom and the pitfalls of living a fool's, fool's life. While the wicked stumble in deep darkness, the path of the righteous is the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day, which is a quote out of chapter 4 of Proverbs. Proverbs is a collection of Israelite wisdom literature, including introductory section chapters 1 through 9, that gives readers a framework for understanding the rest of the book. The book includes the work of various authors, but much of or most of of the, uh, so the Proverbs are attributed to King Solomon. And uh, it's it dates starting from the 10th uh, century B.C. So there's a general picture of, of an introduction. And so we're going to start, like I said, with uh, uh, taking uh, this idea of wisdom as a practical understanding on how to live. And what we're looking for as we go through the next several weeks as we focus on the book of Proverbs, discernment is building your discernment, able to, uh, to separate, if you will, what's true and what's false, what's uh, right and what's wrong, what's good, what's bad, what uh, worth, has worth to it, what, what is worthless. And in other words, the idea is, to be able to separate things and see, oh, this has value to it. And, and why does it have value to it? Well, because it does what? And in this case, we're always seeking initially, does it draw us close to the Lord? Does it glorify God? Uh, this type of thing. Uh, starting with uh, Proverbs chapter 1, then, we're going to look at verses 1 through 7. Uh, and 
It's written, the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction to, to, in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity. To give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb in saying the words of the, of the wise and their riddles. And then here's the first proverb. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And you can go to uh, Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10 and get basically the same thing again. And as well as that, we find in Psalm 111.10, the same words, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So when I say that we're starting at the beginning, we're starting with this concept, the fear of the Lord. And uh, we look at fear and it serves a purpose. And, and fear is it's one of those words that has a, a, a broad definition and can be used in multiple ways. But generally speaking, I would think in the sense of fear, uh, if you were to ask my, my, uh, my granddaughter, who is seven years old, her concept of fear, she would, her first response would be to you, the neighbor's dog. Uh, he comes out, of, if he gets out, he comes out, he growls, he bares his teeth, and, and uh, is very intimidating. And, and having approached him myself, I agree with her. Uh, people have lots of fears. Again, I, I, I have a fear of a particular breed of dog, Doberman Pinschers. Now, people will tell me they're the nicest, most peaceful dogs in the world. They're a great pet. They're great, all this type of stuff. But the one that I met first was one that, that chased me as I, in my paper route. And as I was pedaling as fast as I could, it still got a hold of my cheek. And uh, so I have a, a natural thing. And then when I started, uh, when I go down to where my dad worked and they had a parts yard next to the, to the uh, garage where they, he was a mechanic, they had two dogs and both of them were Doberman pinchers. And if you walked anywhere close to that fence, all you saw was teeth. And so Fear is a healthy thing. You see something that is going to hurt you. You, you know, there's, uh, we teach our children, in a sense, how to deal with fear, but we still te- teach them very simply to be, and we don't say, be, be fearful of crossing the street. But we teach them that crossing the street is what? Dangerous. Therefore, look both ways. Look, you know, be careful. Cross at the crosswalks. Cross with the signals when you can. All the kinds of things. Because we what? Fear for the health and welfare of our children. So fear is a healthy thing. It's, a, it's, it's not something that, that is uh, wrong. And, and Christians, as well as other people, need to have a healthy fear. Uh, I had the experience of uh, fishing up in uh, the, the hills above uh, Paradise. And... The old PG and aqueducts that fill, that that, that uh, uh, served some old small dams for power generation. The water gets going down those aqueducts and it picks up speed to to work the you know hit the generators and the the, the propellers or whatever they are that you call them to get it going faster and all that type of thing. But there was a a um, wood walkway on the top of them, 
that she could could walk around, and I don't know if we were supposed to. I'm looking over at somebody who works for TGD. I don't know if we were supposed to walk on them or not, but we used them as a shortcut of getting around things because they would go around mountains. They were hooked up in such a way that, that they were you know, probably dangerous to do, but at the time I was a kid, I didn't know. And and so with my fishing pole, my friend and I, and, and we get around the corner, and, and it's rather sharp going around this one little bend, and, and we're standing on this, you know, 1 by 12 uh, walkway and in the middle of this aqueduct that's moving extremely fast underneath you, and there's a bear. Now, that's the first bear I've seen in the wild. It's the last bear I've seen in the wild uh, up close. And uh, it was very intimidating, and we decided not to go that direction. We turned around and went back the other way. As it turns out, he, he walked behind us. So we, we went further out of the way. Um, fear is a natural part of who we are. It shouldn't own us, but it's there to caution us. So, there's one kind of fear. That's not the kind of fear we're talking about here today. Um, the, uh, the fear of the Lord that we're talking about here is, is the idea of, of, of uh, to be... Well, let, let me read a definition or a, a, a small article uh, taken from R.C. Sproul. And he... De- he does a better job than I could with this. He says, we need to make some important distinctions about the biblical meaning of fearing God. These distinctions can be helpful, but they can also be dangerous. When Luther struggled with that, he made his distinction, which, was, was, uh, which has since become somewhat famous. He distinguished between what he called servial fear and filial fear. Servial fear is a kind of fear that a prisoner in torture chamber has for his tormentor, the jailer, or the executioner. It's a kind of dreadful anxiety in which someone is frightened by the clear and present danger that is represented by another person. Or it's the kind of fear that a slave would have at the hands of a malicious master who would come with a whip and torment the slave. Servial fear... Uh, refers to a posture of servitude towards a malevolent owner. Okay, now what Luther was doing here was looking at two types of fear that have to do with relationships. He was not talking about the one fear that I just talked about. So, fear of a person who has got the authority over you to torture you, to take your life, to you know, to and 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 various things like this. That was one kind of fear, fear and, and over a master who was cruel. Okay, uh, so servile fear. Uh, uh, Luther distinguished between that and what is called filial fear, drawing from the Latin concept from which we get the idea of family. It refers to the fear that a child has for his father. In this regard, Luther is thinking of a child, and he, he defined this for us, who was tremendous, has tremendous respect and love for his father or mother and who dearly wants to please them. He has a fear or an anxiety of offending the one he loves, not because he's afraid of torture or even of punishment, but rather because he's afraid of displeasing the one who is, in that child's world, the source of security and hope. And again, when we say a fear of displeasing, we'll we'll clarify that more even further here. 
I think this distinction is helpful because the basic meaning of fearing the Lord that we read about in Deuteronomy, uh, also in the wisdom literature, which is what we're talking about today, where we're told that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, the focus here is on a sense of awe and respect for the majesty of God. That's often lacking in contemporary evangelical Christianity. We, we get very flippant and cavalier with God as if we had a casual relationship with the Father. And what he's talking about there is that idea of, of uh, oh, the man upstairs is looking after me. That it's, it's, a very, it's overly casual. And that's where he gets the idea of kind of a flippant relationship. And, and so uh, he says we're, our relationship should never be in that context, so casual. We should always honor Him with our words in such a way that we are glorifying Him. And we say, well, God tells us to come into us. He invites us in as a friend. And one uh, person who, who was writing about this, who was uh, uh, a, an officer in the military, said he wouldn't go into his commanding officer's uh, office, even though they were on a first-name basis, uh, and, and cross his legs uh, and put him, his feet up on the table and say, hey, Joe, how you doing today? You know, it, it was, he treated him with a sense of respect. And, and, uh, and so that idea of, of honoring God in all that we do is to respect him. Yes, I'm allowed to draw close to him. Yes, he calls me his friend. But at the same time, I want to be and should be in awe of who he is. In fact, all the more I should be in awe if he invites me into his presence through the blood of Christ. I'm allowed to do that. In fact, his expectation was that I wouldn't come to visit, but that I would come to dwell with him. I think of A.W. Tozer who writes, you know, Jesus didn't die on the cross for us to take an occasion to look into the Holy of Holies. He died on the cross so that we could dwell there. And so this idea of, of having a a personal, intimate relationship with God, but still with reverence and awe of who He is, is the idea of the fear of the Lord. Um, uh, he, he points that out here. He says, We are invited to call Him Abba, Father, and to have the personal intimacy promised to us, but still we are not to be flippant with God. We are also to maintain a healthy respect and adoration for Him. Uh, And, and, and so we, we look at that and, and, and understand this fear is, is a healthy fear. It's not a trembling fear. Uh, it's a fear that draws us into worship, into awe, into His presence. Actually, a fear like, unlike the world's fear or this, the, the, the servile fear that, that Luther was talking about, it's a fear that actually brings us into peace. And those are almost conflicting terms in the way we look at our, from our culture, fear and peace together. <laughs> but to be, have this reverent awe of who God is, is, is where we start in the beginning. So that's what, what, what he starts with here in, in, in verse 2. To know wisdom and instruction, uh, uh, verse, uh, verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And also the idea of wisdom, again, in 9.10. And uh, so the fear of the Lord is the beginning spot for us here. 
I guess what I would like to, to draw from this would be to say that the fear of the Lord is the foundation to knowing and loving Him. The great commandment that Jesus uh, was asked about, what, you know, what are the, what is, what's the greatest of the commandments? In the, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22, Jesus answers the, the scribes and the Pharisees. Uh, when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. They were asking them questions, trying to entrap him. And so they thought, here's one that we debate all the time and can't ever come up with an absolute answer for uh, an agreement on. So it says, and one of them, a lawyer, asked Jesus a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the law and the prophets. And what Jesus was basically saying is the commandments of the Old Testament, both all of the law, depends is can be summed up in these two things: love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and then love your neighbor as yourself. And again, it's that the attitude here is that this taking I'm third attitude: God is first, my my people around me are second, and I'm third. And 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 wanting to help and come alongside those in need around me, this type of thing. To love your neighbor. And even to go as far as to love your enemy, Jesus says very clearly. So here we are with this picture. And I was thinking, okay, go to Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 17, and look at the Ten Commandments. And the first four commandments deal with your relationship with God. It's this relationship. What's interesting is the next six commandments, 5 through 10, deal with this relationship with the people around you. And, it's, and Jesus says, here's a summary of it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, the first four. Love your neighbor as yourself, the next six. And he says the whole law of the prophets, uh, the law and the prophets, rests on this. So the teachings of the Old Testament rest on this principle. And, you know, you, you, you look at this and, and, and these are the things that Jesus said that kept these, you know, these, these people walk away silent because they, they have no rebuttal. And I, I love that part of it, too. It's kind of like Jesus comes up with a, a very basic, obvious answer in the sense of if you were really a scholar at a word and seeking the Lord, you would, this would be something you would understand. And they walk away kind of like, well, uh, kind of loss of words. And these are men who speak words constantly. So, uh, uh, this fear of the Lord is this idea of love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And if you do that, the natural consequence is going to be to love your neighbor and to reach out. And, and also, just to, to look as to how important uh, God thought these, you know, put these things into a uh, category of, of how important they were. Uh, in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter uh, 6, a frequently used scripture, uh, as Moses is preparing the people to go into the promised land, he's going over all the things of, that God has brought to them and taught them and saying you've got to keep these things 
in, in perspective here and, and do certain things. And he says, this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I commanded you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the, the God of your fathers, has promised you, in a land flowing with milk and honey. And then he gives a very specific picture here. He says, Hear, O Israel, verse 4 of Deuteronomy 6, The Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words I command you, you should, shall be on, should be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals between your eyes. In other words, tie them up, uh, uh, scriptures on your wrists and, and the thing, your headband around here where scripture could be written and recorded up there. Uh, you'll, you'll put them there on your hands and on your on your forehead. Uh, you shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. What Moses was saying is the Word of God is so important that it needs to be available to you wherever you're looking. Now, you have to understand, somebody says, well, does that mean I should go and put Scripture all over my doorposts and my gates and posts and stuff like that? Nothing wrong with that. But that's not necessary. We're very fortunate we have something they didn't have. What is it? We have the Bible in its written form for us to have. I'm suggesting to you, though, that your Bible be something that is, that is a regular part of your life. Not a Sunday part of your life, but a regular part of your life. I was reading uh, of one old-time teacher back in the early 1900s who his practice to get up uh, in the morning and, and, and he started by reading Scripture. And what he did was he read one uh, chapter of Proverbs every morning and five Psalms every morning. By the way, I, 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 I timed that. It's a matter of minutes to do that. It's not like it's a lengthy process. The idea was that he sat there with a notebook, however, and he would write down a particular word or a particular phrase that he would meditate then afterwards on for a while. But it was interesting, most of all, was that it got him through the book of Proverbs and Psalms in one month, and then he just start over again. And that was his daily reading, and he was given, you know, and he was a man of great, uh, greatly respected in his teachings. And so I thought about that. It's, it's the idea of. of being familiar with God's Word. How important is it? It's important enough that, 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 that Moses says you need to diligently teach it, teach it to your children morning, noon, and night. And that you see it everywhere you look. That it's a, when The idea of creating a world you look at through God's Word. So I was putting the things here down on a list. Where do you learn the things of God? Now, I, I 
foot that, that one is that, that Paul makes a big deal out about in, in Romans chapter 1, verses starting with verse 18, uh, how the world and man ha- ignoring God and, and, and focusing on the creation and making their gods out of, out of the things of creation rather than, than recognizing God himself and how that's foolish. But the idea is, is that we can see God in creation. Uh, I've mentioned him before, a teacher I had in, in high school. Uh, he couldn't teach a, 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 about Christianity specifically, but he did teach in such a way that he uh, said it's, it, the creation was so amazing that, uh, or not, he didn't say that, that biology was so amazing that the more you studied it, the more you must believe there's an intelligent designer. And if you asked him after class what that meant, he, w- he didn't hesitate. He said, well, that means, you know, he said, God spoke it. He said, there, it has to have a beginning. And he says, it can't come from nothing. It can't just, a series of mistakes get you there. And then he would say something like, the bombardier beetle just won't let you get there. And if you understand anything about bombardier beetles, they have two compartments that discharge, and, if they, and, and they make a little explosion behind them. If they, and, and to evolve, how, how did they ever do that without blowing up? And in other words, you know, it, there's, there, most of them look at it and say they can't that that beetle can't get from this spot to this spot without exploding. There has to be something else going on here. And I'm just suggesting that that, that was, you know, this was, again, the idea that that, uh, you know, looking at the world through through God's eyes, it's, creation tells us there's a designer. Creation tells us the more we look at 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 at. Uh, so, uh, molecular biology and, and get into uh, small things, I, 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 I'm just amazed. Um, I, don't, I think some of you know Jason Christensen. Uh, and Jason, uh, interestingly enough, he, he, he's, uh, well, he's a, a counselor and, and, and all up here. Uh, his uh, studies were in biology. And, uh, and, and one of the things that he, I remember while he was down in Southern California going to school, finishing up his degrees, and, and uh, he was uh, sharing with me, he says it was really amazing how the, the, the teachers just avoided in every way possible of talking about the, the, even, the, even the possibility of intelligent design, let alone creation specifically. And he said how they will just go all around it because, and he says, They'll lose their grants and 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 stuff like that for their for their projects if they hint at the fact that the Bible is real, that creation exists. And I thought that was interesting because that fit right into what Romans says. People will, will choose the world and get to a point where it's even considered wrong to talk about those things. You know, so. Uh, the world is basically saying the fear of God is not part of our concern. So if we're looking to the world to find wisdom, according to what we're seeing in Scripture, we will never find it. We will always be on the side of the fools. And 1 Corinthians talks about that in chapter 1 as well. So where do you learn about things? Well, we can learn from creation. We can also learn from other people. We uh, in the sense of, of uh, 
our family, we you probably everybody's had at least one or two people in their family that they considered wise people. And uh, but I found out, and it, and it was interesting. The wisest person in my family that I that I that I know was my grandmother. And she didn't have a a formal education past the eighth grade, but she knew the scriptures inside and out. And she, whenever I came up against a problem, she says, well, let's see what the, the, the Word says. Let's see what the Bible says. And it always kind of bugged me because, you know, that was, you know, I, I didn't have a connection with it other than through her. And uh, looking back now, I see all the things that she did, all the people she ministered to, how she walked. She'd go to the store, buy groceries, and she bought extra groceries to hand out to the people who were on the streets. This was during the Depression that she started doing it. But she was doing it while I was alive, too, to the point where my, my mom and my aunt wouldn't go shopping with her because it embarrassed them because she would stop and talk to the, to the panhandlers and, the, and, the, and the stuff on the street and give them food. And that was just the way she was. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Treat your neighbor as you would want to be treated. Well, I would, if I was hungry sitting on there, I wish somebody would give me an apple. And that's what she would do. It was just part of her life. She lived it every day. So you can learn it from people. But the obvious place where we are to learn it is where? The Scripture. We're told in Second Timothy that the word is God breathed, that it's good for up, you know, to to for teaching, educating, and training. Okay, so the word of God is where we are to go, and we are so blessed as a people to have a revelation that God has produced through His Holy Spirit. God breathed. I mean, that's a powerful statement, so that we can go to it with 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 great confidence that what we're reading was reading truth. Do I understand everything that I read? No. But to understand it well, I have to start, according to Proverbs, verse 7, with the fear of God. And what kind of fear again was this? Well, it's, it's a healthy fear of understanding. He is the sovereign God. And before I became a Christian, I did live with a fear of death. I did live with certain other fears. And as a Christian, I finally came to the conclusion that death was a win and not a loss. That the, 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 Paul putting it to, to, to live as Christ, to die as gain, was basically saying Satan's best shot at me is to, to take my life and I win. So the, that kind of fear is removed. But to also see God in the sense that he has the authority to judge and, and all this stuff, to live with the idea of I want to come back to what, what was being shared by uh, uh, R.C. Sproul was, was that idea of wanting to please God. And, and, and my fear is not a fear of trembling, but a, a, a thought of, of I don't want to grieve God. I want to bless God. I want to show my love for Him by the way I live my life. So... Uh, a path to you know uh, to life is to, is to fear the Lord uh, with all our heart, with all you know, and 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 soul and mind, and and that's the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. Now he knows that he says fools despise wisdom and instruction. What it means is that they, they just basically is that 
they despise the wisdom and instruction as it comes from where? Scripture, from God. There are great pe- people that are, are, are tremendously educated. They don't, they don't, they, they've been trained, they've been instructed, they are instructors, <laughs> they've got their PhDs and all sorts of things, and yet they don't have a fear of God. And according to Scripture, that makes them what? Foolish. You can be the most educated person there is, and if you deny God, you don't have a fear of who God is, you don't love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. You are on the other side of this fence. You're on the broad path to destruction, according to Matthew chapter 7, rather than the narrow path to life. So, as we look at this, how do we deal with this? And I was trying to think of a way of 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 a picture of, of what it is to, to rest in, in the Word. And I realize that there's no point in me trying to express it when it's been expressed so well in, the, in Psalm 1. And so if you want to turn to Psalm chapter 1, we'll, we'll conclude with this thoughts that come from here. David, writing this, he said, Blessed is the man who walks, in the count, uh, who, who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. Blessed is the man who does not, who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. That means the people who deny God, who refuse the God of creation, who refuse the God of scriptures. They are the wicked. Wicked, we normally think of you know terribly bad people. No, wicked is just people who refuse God in this context. So we could say, walks not in the counsel of those who deny God. He doesn't stand in the way of sinners. Meaning he doesn't hang around people whose lifestyle reflects the life of sin. He, he doesn't, that's not the people he makes his friends. So he doesn't stand and hang with them. And then it says, and, and, and he doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers. Those, uh, he doesn't sit with those people who mock God. And really, it's a progression here. If you walk in the counsel of the wicked, you will end up standing in the way of sinners and ultimately sitting with those who mock God. The, the, the reverse is implied here, and it's meant to be there. So... How do we start again? We look at walking in the counsel of God. And that's where he says, but, verse 2, his delight is in the law of the Lord, the word of God. And on his law he meditates day and night. Comes back to what Deuteronomy was talking about. Something that I do. It's not something I do once in a while, but it's a habitual part of my lifestyle to reflect on and, and look to the word of God. And, and wanting it to change me. And he says the result of a person who wants this is that he will have it. The Holy Spirit is faithful. He will do this. And it says he, is, he becomes like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. 
and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. And this idea of streams here, uh, by streams of water, is by canals that are made for its nourishment. Uh, it's literally the idea of, 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 of irrigation. Okay, We are a tree planted in a garden that who does the irrigating of this garden at this point then? God. How does he do it? Through his word. And we are like a tree that's nourished and irrigated by his word in such a way that we prosper. And this isn't the prosperity gospel here. It's prosperous doing, meaning that we will accomplish the things he has for us to do. And he will provide our needs for them, those things to be accomplished. And it's not, it, it, it's not dealing with, with the prosperity in the sense of the way people normally think about it. It says, our leaves will not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. Uh, and, and, and basically the idea that he pleases God. The inverse is put to us then, the wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Who is in the category of the wicked? Everyone who does not delight in the law of the Lord. They are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And where it says here, they will not stand. It says, therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. There's an implication, an inverse of this, which is implied. Who does stand in the judgment? All the people that delight in the law of the Lord. And so as we look at this, as we go through this, and as we're looking at Proverbs, these are the things that we're going to be looking at as to how it applies to daily things in our lives or parts of our lives as to how we should look at them as and it includes raising children, it includes marriage, it includes how we view sex. There's a whole lot of things to be you know, discovered in the book of Proverbs that, and much of which we will be talking about as we go through this together. So, we're starting point. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord means to have awe and respect for who He is. The recognition of Him as the Savior the, the creator of the universe, all that, that is implied there. And I figured the best way to, to sum that up was Colossians chapter 1. He is the, referring to Christ. Jesus is, uh, Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the, first from the, uh, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. What a powerful picture of the awesomeness of who God is and revealed to us through Christ Jesus. And that obviously takes us right into communion. He proved His love for us. He just didn't say He loves us. Because there was the dilemma of our sin. And our sin kept us from the presence of God. 
God says, I have a plan for that. He creates this whole situation of, of, of system and, and worship and, and, and understanding through the Old Testament to point us to this plan that would be revealed in Christ Jesus. And we look back through the New Testament and looking back to what Christ has done and we realize He is the fulfillment of all of this plan. He is the essence of it. The God who loves us, loves us so much that He gave His only Son to die on the cross so that we could be saved. He poured out His blood. He came in the flesh. And that's what we do at communion and recognize. I ask the ushers come and pass the communion out.